This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. Today on Case Closed, we begin with the adventures of Sam Spade and his story from June 8, 1947, titled The Calcutta Trunk Caper. After that, it's the adventures of Philip Marlowe and The Big Step, his story from February 28, 1950. Ahoy! It's me. Just came ashore. From what? A boat? A ship, Effie. A ship. Anything over 400 gross tons is a ship. Anybody knows that. May I inquire what was your port of call? Calcutta. My, that was a quick trip. Well, Effie, I'll tell you. I got so homesick for you, I couldn't stand it, so I assembled my gear and jumped ship. Why, Sam, how sweet. A faster, gal. I'll be right down to dictate my report. Voyage, Effie. I've been worried sick. Where have you been? On my way to Calcutta, sweetheart, where the dawn comes up like thunder. Sam, what are you talking about? Calcutta? And the flying fishes play. Ready, Effie? Sam, why did you want to go to Calcutta of all places? I didn't, Effie. I hate Calcutta. I was Shanghai. <sighs> to, uh, Mr. Philip J. Fogg, purser, S.S. Urine. How do you spell that, Sam? L-U-R-E-N-E. Oh, that's pretty. Sam, how could you be shanghaied in this day and age? I mean, isn't it against the law? Stow it, Effie. You're pumping bilge water. Sam, I am not. From Samuel Spade, license number 137596, when you have the time, regarding the Calcutta trunk caper. Dear Mr. Fogg, the following report will explain the enclosed voucher, which is a claim against your company for the amount of $500 and no cents. It will also answer any questions you might be asked concerning the recent unpleasantness on board your ship. It all started yesterday morning in San Francisco when my secretary announced briefly and caustically that there was a lady outside who wanted to talk to me. I judged that she was worth talking to. She was. Your secretary let me in. Well, I'm glad she did. What can I do for you? I'm Marsha Hopkins. I see. Mrs. Marsha Hopkins. I see. However, my husband is dead. I see. It's about my sister that I've come to you, Mr. Spade. I'm dreadfully worried about her. Uh, who's your sister? Miss Constance Pendleton. And she's become involved with a, a ne'er-do-well, a completely worthless scoundrel and a real foreign bluebeard. All three? It's one man, Mr. Spade. A Bulgarian, Major Andrea Rodnik. They're going to be married this afternoon, and I'm positive that his only interest is in her money. I'm convinced that he's going to kill her soon after the ceremony. He's done it to other wives in Europe. I've warned Constance and pleaded with her, done everything I could to stop it. But she's completely infatuated with him and refuses to listen to me. Mm -hmm. What do you want me to do? Prevent the marriage if you can. Get the truth about Rodnick's background and face Constance with it. Oh, Mr. Spain, in some way you've got to make her realize the seriousness of the situation. He's a ruthless character. <clears throat> well, do what I can, Mrs. Hopkins. Oh, thank you, Mr. Spade. Oh, I've felt so alone and helpless uh, until now. Oh, really? But you will do everything you can, won't you? We've got to save her life. 
She daubed at her eyes with a stamp-sized handkerchief, patted the red-gold hair of the temples nervously, smiled at me bravely, and swayed out. By telephone, I learned that the Vrodnik Pendleton marriage license had been issued four days before, and that on the same day, Constance Pendleton had withdrawn a savings account to the tune of $45,000. I'd always wanted to, so I did it. I uh, called at the Bulgarian consulate. What can I do on you? What do you know about Major Andrei Vrodnik? Ha! Andrei Vrodnik! On him we have hate, great sadness, with shame for the ground that walked under him. Oh? Ha! Andrei Vrodnik! Uh, why is he so popular? On the devil he is driven without horns. Six women he has killed. Six times he has insulted the police of Europe by refusing to confess. We have proof of the murders, but never can we prove the proof on him. Yeah, sometimes it goes that way. Ha! Never do we find the bodies of the six women. Only their money in the name of Andrea Vrodnik. <coughs> My pardon. Well, think nothing of it. You're, uh, you're just upset uh, on you. You're interested on him. Why? You go to Europe? No, uh, Vrodnik comes here. Ha! Here? Here on San Francisco? He marries again? So I'm told. Ha! Oh, by all the means, you must prevent it. Go to him, brave man. You do the world a service. Make violence on him. Even do you hang for it, your name will live. With those valiant words goading me on, I left. The farther I got into the caper, the more it looked as if Marsh's fears for Constance Pendleton were very real and very well-founded. When uh, Constance opened the door of her hotel suite, I could see three trunks and a number of smaller pieces of luggage, all locked and ready to be taken out. Yes? Are you Constance Pendleton? Yes. Uh, I'm a detective. My name is Spade. Detective? What do you want? I uh, want to talk to you about that bluebeard you're going to marry. Get out of here. Uh, you listen, I'll talk, and then I'll get out of here. I just left the Bulgarian consulate. Vrodnik has been accused of the murders of six women in Europe. Each of them were wealthy. Each of them married him, and each time Vrodnik came into all their money. Are you trying to blackmail me because of the lies about my fiancé's past? If you are, you're wasting your time. Well, no matter what I'm doing, I'm wasting my time. But to put you straight, your sister hired me, and I am now resigning. She's worried about you, not me. Then you should spend more time investigating your clients, Mr. Spade. You could have saved both of us some time. I have no sister. This is my wedding day. Goodbye, Mr. Spade. As I left the room, I maintained the stern facial expression I reserved for moments of great shock. But once outside the door, I allowed myself to be carried on the wave of rage and embarrassment for just a minute. And I kicked over two potted palms. As I uh, limped down the corridor, I was overtaken by none other than Marcia Hopkins. Did you see her? Let's talk about you first. Did you stop the marriage? Why did you really want that marriage stopped? But I told you. You told me you were her sister. Oh. She said she didn't have any sister. All right, Sam, I did lie to you about that. But I'll tell you who I really am. I don't want to know who you are. I don't ever want to know. All I want from you is my honestly earned fee and a brief but permanent goodbye. Oh, no, Sam, please listen to me. We've got to save that girl. I have $500. That's all I have. Would it be enough? What's your real name? Marsha Brodnick. Yes, he's my husband. I've been married to him for ten years. We've traveled all over Europe, and I never knew where the money was coming from. 
He left me at times for two weeks or a month, and then when he'd come back, there'd be more money. I just realized that that's when he must have been killing those poor women. And I know that's what he's going to do this time. I just can't stand it. You've got to protect her. That should be easy. We'll let him get married and meet him at the door with a bigamy warrant. Then you will see me through this. I might. Oh. In my bag, there's $500. Take it. If we can't stop the marriage, then don't let him out of your sight. Not even for a minute. He's a beast, Sam. A beast. Marcia dropped me in front of the Beast's Hotel, and I climbed some fake marble steps to the second floor and knocked at his door. The man who opened it was heavy, handsome, in a swarthy, coarse sort of a way, and glowing conceit through two eyes, one monocled, one not. You are facing Major Andreev Rodnik, first Bulgarian horse. What want you? You are facing Saul Fox of the law firm of Fox, Smedley, Van Dusen, and Grip. You overwhelmed yourself. I came here to warn you. If you go through with a marriage to Constance Pendleton, you're going to find yourself tangled with civil law. Warn Andreev Rodnik, who has personally led more saber charges than you have teeth in your skull. Yes. Who has personally split, slashed, and impaled on his own blade more men than you have fingers and toes. You warn me. What is this talk? You're going to have a bigamy charge slapped on you five minutes after you slip her the ring. The warrant signed by Mrs. Marsha Vrodnik. Bigamy? Ha! I laugh. This is not bigamy. Marsha's your wife, isn't she? That bigamy was committed when I married her. I had another wife then. You call yourself a lawyer, then you know that only the second marriage is bigamy. The ones following that are nothing, nothing but interludes. Okay, Major, go ahead and have your interlude. I'm just warning you. Oh, speaks. We are being married on Redwood City from a justice of the peace one hour previous. Then we are sailing through the SS Lurine at midnight with our honeymoon. Already a droshky awaits for the baggage and luggage. Go now before I'm losing my temper. If you're ever in Calcutta, look me up. Da! I could see the direct approach was getting me nowhere, so I decided to proceed by stealth. I waited outside the building, and when he left, I tailed him. He made four stops. At a second-hand store, a hardware store, a surgical supply house, and an undertaker supply house. At these places, he purchased the following items. An oversized steamer trunk, black with brass fittings, a large ball of rope twine, two large lead sash weights, a set of surgical instruments, and at the fourth and final stop, the undertaking supply, he bought two items, a 20-foot length of rubber tubing and a pump. He returned to the second-hand store with his other purchases, put them inside the trunk, and ordered it sent up to Constance's hotel immediately, and thereupon, it took himself to the same place. Marcia was waiting in the empty lobby when he went in. I crouched behind a pillar, turned up my hearing aid, and listened. Did you get the thing? Yeah. Now listen, my darling, we must work fast. Yeah. As soon as the trunk arrives, before she has a chance to get to yes, the telephone... Yes, yes, Andre, but please, no cutting in the apartment. As you wish, my darling. Now, you know what you have to do. Yes, While I'm getting her into the trunk, you'll change her clothes, put on her traveling dress, the hat with the... Wet. What is it? What's the matter? Nothing, nothing. Come, we must make haste. Uh, 
They made haste to the elevators, and I made haste to the row of house telephone booths around the corner and called Constance's room. Hello? This is Rodney. Speaking. Listen, get out of that room right away. Don't take the elevator. Get down the stairs. Who is this? What are you talking about? I haven't got time to explain, and you haven't got time to listen. All those stories about your husband are true. He's going... My hand clawed out to the door handle, but I couldn't reach it. I felt as if the walls were closing in around me, and just before it got dark, I had the crazy notion that I was inside Brodnick's big black trunk with the brass fittings. I could still hear Constance's voice way off in the distance, somewhere in the direction of Calcutta. I tried to shout to her, to warn her, and then the lid closed over me. I shook my head, trying to get the bells out of it. Then I remembered where I was and what had happened. I was still wedged into the bottom of a phone booth where I'd slumped when Brodnick sat me. I got out of there somehow and grabbed a taxi for the Embarcadero. The time was 11.55. The SS Lorraine was scheduled to sail at midnight. was no sooner across it than they hauled up the gangplank and the ship started moving out of the berth. I didn't know where she was bound for and I didn't much care. I checked the passenger list and found that Major and Mrs. Andrea Brodnick were in stateroom 12, A deck. One minute later, I was hammering on the door of stateroom 12. The woman in Brodnick's stateroom was Constance and she was not in a trunk. I thought I told you to stop interfering in our affairs. Yeah, your husband told me to, but I didn't like the way he did it. Get out from here. Get out. I see you got your trunk in here where it's handy. Doesn't it make the stateroom kind of crowded? Why don't you give up, Mr. Spade? Two times already, you are twice a fool. Marcia has no money to pay you, neither have I, even if she had the case. And believe me, she has not. Well, why do you even bother talking to him, Andre? Mr. Well, Spade, will you go now, or will I have to call the steward and make a complaint against you? I went. I still thought Marsha Hopkins was somewhere on that ship. I still didn't like the look of that trunk. I found the purse's office and went in. You looked at me as if you thought I was a stowaway, Mr. Fogg, and you were right. I'll have to make arrangements for you to ride back with a pilot, Mr. Spade. You realize, of course, that you're subject to a fine. Look, I don't want to do anything illegal. You know, it was uh, just an impulsive thing. Uh, Couldn't I book a passage? Oh, there's a matter of your passport. Could arrange a visa and so on in St. Pedro. We'll put in there in the morning. Well, that's good enough. Uh, how much is the fare? Oh, let me see. That's $483.97, exclusive of tax. Oh, hey, now, wait, I wasn't thinking of taking quite such an extensive voyage, you know. I just wanted to get a little sea air. And, uh, how much to Pedro? Well, I'm afraid you don't understand, Mr. Spade. This is not a coastwise steamer. Our first official port of call is Calcutta. Yeah, I know, but Calcutta... That's in India. Well, uh, uh, don't you have something a little less expensive, like uh, steerage or... Uh... There is only one stateroom available, number 14A deck. Take it or leave it. Okay, okay, Calcutta. After buying my passage to Calcutta, I had exactly 12 cents left. This I gave to the steward who showed me to my stateroom. He uh, thanked me, kicked me in the shins, and left. 
Out on deck, a tall, red-nosed old gentleman in knickerbockers and a yachting cap was taking a turn around the deck. With him was a face I'd seen in the morning lineup down at the Hall of Justice a dozen times. He was a hotel thief by profession, name of Norman Gorman. He knew me, too, but he didn't give me a tumble. I fell into step with him. Ah, see <laughs> Nothing like it, am I right? <laughs> yeah, I guess it's okay, but there's so much of it. Ah, uh, brisk, bracing, salt spray. Nothing like it. <laughs> uh, hey, Norman, my lad. <laughs> I hate it. I hate boats. Suppose there was a fire on board. Fire? Oh, ridiculous. Uh, this your first voyage to the Orient? Yeah. Uh, the inscrutable East. You've made this trip before? Oh, yes, indeed. I've worked this line. I mean, uh, yes, indeed. I make this voyage very often. Business interest out in India. Tea, you know. Runs in my family. Sturgis's golden orange in the little yellow package. Ever tried it? Uh, no, I never indulge. Huh? Don't drink tea. That's ridiculous. Commodore, I need a drink. I ain't happy. Suppose there was a fire on board here. Ah. Well, let's all have a drink. Yeah, suppose there was Shall a we? Come on, I'll shut you to a drink, sir. Uh, not me, Commodore. I, uh, just remember this is Fire Prevention Week. The nearest fire alarm to Brodnick's stateroom was on the companionway leading to the A-deck corridor. It was a glass-enclosed box with a small hammer hanging on a chain. I broke the glass and turned the key. In three seconds flat, the entire population of A-deck were shoving each other up the companionway, grabbing for life preservers as they went. The steward hammered on the door of stateroom 12, opened it, shouted inside, and Brodnick and Constance reluctantly came out. I ducked inside, grabbed the handle of the trunk, and started dragging it. When I got it into my stateroom, I broke the lock and lifted the lid. It was Marsha, all right. There was just time to see that before the stateroom door flew open and the ship's officer stuck I, his head in. I why, uh, no, I didn't. What's wrong? Never mind that. Here, take this life preserver. Get going Okay, now. okay. On. Don't touch me. It makes me nervous. Twenty minutes later, the captain announced to the mob up on the deck that it was a false alarm, and the passengers drifted back to their cabins. I tried to look casual as I unlocked my stateroom door and walked in. Then I stopped trying. The trunk was still there, but the lid was standing open, and it was empty. I went down to B-deck and found the cabin occupied by Norm and the Commodore. That door was locked, so I kicked it in. You could still see the marks on her wrists and ankles with the cord. It was the girl I had seen in the trunk. It was Marsha Hopkins. And she was very much alive. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was... Oh, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You've got to help me, Sam. Why should I help you? He's crazy. They're both crazy. It all depends on who's in the trunk, doesn't it, Marsha? When it was Constance, you didn't think he was so crazy. Oh, don't you understand? I had to pretend that I'd help him. He was going to kill her right there in the hotel room. I told him it was too dangerous. If anybody looked in the trunk, it would be safer if she was in there alive. So he finally agreed and said he'd wait until we got out to sea to kill her. And then he was Yeah, going I know to... about that. Oh, the idea was so awful, I, I couldn't stand it. I started to scream, and then he stuffed the gag in my mouth and tied me up. He must have used chloroform or something, because the next thing I knew, I, I was in the trunk. And that little dark man was leaning over me. He and that old man with the knickers. 
They brought me here. <laughs> well, they pulled a switch on you. You were the fall gal all along. Oh, you've got to believe me. It was the only way I could save her life. You're the only one I can turn to, Sam. That little thief and the old man, they'd deliver me dead if there was an extra $25 in it. Oh, say you'll help me, Sam. Please say it. When you ask me like that, what, what else can I say? Oh, you do believe me, darling. You do believe me. Come on, let's get out of here. I'm sorry, Mr. Spade. Please step back inside. <clears throat> I promised my associate, Mr. Gorman, that I would not allow this young lady to risk her life by leaving this cabin. You're getting into this cave at the wrong end, Commodore. It's wound up. They've bungled it. It's no good anymore. You may be right. But you understand my position, sir. I can't take any chances. You've uh, talked to Mr. Gorman? Norm? Yeah, I talked to him. He took you into his confidence? Stop making with the pistol, Commodore. You don't know how to use it anyway. Oh, heavens, Norm, you... You're as white as a sheet. What is it? Oh, he, he's sick. Go go get a doctor. Yes, yes, indeed. Right away. Listen, Spade. Take her with you. Get out of here. I don't want no part of this. You got it bad, Norm. I'm sick, I tell you. The way I had it sized, this was a clean caper, a snatch. I figured the dame here's an heiress or something. Maybe they drop her off in L.A., correct some, connect some ransom and go on. I, I figured there was enough for all of us. Oh, but that creep, that Rodnick, he's crazy. He's a regular Jack the Ripper. Stop babbling, Norm. Tell me what happened, exactly what happened. I get a sinking feeling in my stomach every time I think about it. Well, I go in, see? He's very smooth, very businesslike. He offers me a drink. I accept it. He mixes a couple of highballs for me and the dame, and then he starts talking. I guess she don't know all about it before this, because she gets just sick as I do. First, I think he's kidding. Then he drags out this set of cutlery like a doctor uses to operate on people. Only he's got something else in mind. The porthole, you understand? Oh, please. I don't want to hear anymore. Being as it's you he has in mind, I don't blame you. My, my stomach. Hey, Norm. Norm. Oh, here he is, the ship surgeon. Oh, dear me. What, what, what? Uh, stand away from him, please. Help me get him into the bunk. Sure, Doctor. Take the shade off that light, please. Ah, uh, yes, yes. He's dead, isn't he? Oh, yes, he's dead, of course. Who poisoned him? I didn't waste any time answering him. I grabbed him by the arm. Before he could object, I was pushing him up the companionway to A-deck. It was probably too late to save Constance's life if she'd drunk the same poison, and I was pretty sure she had, but if I was going to nail him for the murder of Constance, I had to get there before the evidence vanished. We got there just in time. <laughs> I don't need to tell you what we saw. I'd rather not. Brodnick rose slowly to his feet, clicked his heels military fashion, and bowed very low. Ah, the ship's surgeon. How opportune. Perhaps you could advise me, doctor. After all, I am, in all honesty, even still a mere amateur at this sort of thing. <laughs> After Frodnick had been taken into custody, we took another turn around the deck. It was daylight, and the ship was lying to off San Pedro. This time, the fresh air really felt good, and so did Marcia. It's all over, Sam. Yes, sweetheart, it's all over. But not between us. Say it, Sam. Say it's not all over between us. How can it be? I knew it. I knew you felt the same way. All my life before, it's been like a terrible nightmare. It never really happened. 
But it did happen, sweetheart. Oh, but you can forget it, darling, can't you? Please forget it. I'd like to, Marcia. I really would. Hold me close, Sam. Never let me go. You're beautiful. Is that all, Sam? Nothing else? Yeah. Lots else. That's why I think we'd better say goodbye right now. Because when I feel like this, I get foolish. And if I get foolish with you, I'm likely to wake up in a trunk someplace. And that, Mr. Fogg, is the true account of the Calcutta trunk caper. As my voyage was interrupted through no fault of my own, I trust you will advise your company to refund my passage minus the one-way trip to San Pedro. Uh... Period and a report. Sam Spade is played by Howard Duck. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. This time, a friend with millions, a myopic chemist and a long-haired piano player, but thrown into panic because a brilliant young lady with a gun was taking a big step in the wrong direction. It happened like this. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Big Step. Yes, sir, Mr. Marlowe, I, I always figure shoes are just like faces. How's that, champ? Well, they make it old and they make it wrinkled, but they're still okay as long as they got a shine on them. <laughs> yeah, it keeps that right in condition, huh, champ? <laughs> yes, sir. Hey, let me just spank up this one again, huh? Sure. Oh, come in. Mr. Marlowe? Yeah? Oh, excuse me, I didn't know you was busy. That's all right. Okay, champ, I guess it does it. Here you are. Oh, thank you, Mr. Marlowe. I'll uh, see you tomorrow. Right. Well, now that my shoes have a new lease on life, won't you sit down? Miss, uh... Santa. Mrs. Betty Cantor. Oh. I'm a waitress at the Shelton Cafe. I need your help, Mr. Marlowe. There's something you could do for me. You free to take a case? Well, I'm free, depending on the case. What is it? Well, today, this friend of mine, Shirley Vitello, comes into the restaurant where I work. Yeah. She takes her usual table, and while she's waiting for her order, she starts reading the paper. Well, it's all quiet so far, Betty. Yeah, but just when I'm bringing in the tomato juice, it happens. She sees something in the paper that scares her. Scares her bad. What was it, Betty? Do you know? I don't know. She muttered something, and then she runs out of the place. Her face was gray like ashes. Later, I got to worrying. I called her at home, then at the lab where she works, even her husband's studio. No luck. Now, wait a minute, Betty. I, I don't quite get the connection. You and Shirley Vitello, I mean. Oh, I don't know. We're social. We're only chummy at the restaurant. She's been eating there for years. Well, that's a basis for friendship. Yeah. Well, about six months ago, I was in bad trouble. And Shirley came through with 200 bucks when it seemed like more money than I'd ever seen. Yeah. It kept me and my husband together. So, you see, she means a lot to me. 
Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, look, Bet, what was this about a lab? Well, Shirley's a technician. She works as an assistant to a chemist named Softman. Abraham Softman, out on Melrose someplace. Mm-hmm. What about Shirley's husband? Do you know him? Gilbert? Oh, yeah. He comes in with her a lot. He's a piano composer and a real nice guy. Mm. He lives for his work. He's unknown now, but he's a real genius, oh, Shirley sure, says. Sure. She'd do anything to keep him and his music going. Yeah, well, tell me, this friend of yours saw something in a paper you said that scared her. Now, that's all you know, huh? Yeah. And I want you to find out why and help her. Here's 50 bucks, Mr. Marlowe. That's what you charge, ain't it? Uh, more or less, yeah. <clears throat> By the way, Mrs. Cantor, where's your ring? Uh, I sometimes take it off when I'm working. You do, huh? Yeah. Or perhaps when you hock it to raise 50 bucks? Look, Betty, I'm a careless guy. You, um, you better hold the money, huh? Oh, but Mr. Marlowe... Where do the Vitellos live? But Mr. Marlowe... We're in a hurry, Betty, remember? Where's the address? Well, it's 3140 Veteran Avenue. Mm -hmm. And in case you want it, Gilbert's studio is Benedict Canyon, 510. Thanks, Mr. Marlowe. And you call me at Empire 17087, huh? When Betty Cantor was gone, I got in my car and drove out to Veteran Avenue. You know, she was a pathetic little creature. And with a little effort, she could have that touch-and-glow look. Oh, well. 3140 was one of those small but neat houses that grow like mushrooms overnight on a post-war California landscape. And it was locked, dark, and quiet. I went around to the back and started on the windows. The third one opened when I tried it. I climbed in, turned on some lights, and made the grand tour, then entered in the den. The only indication that anyone had been there all day was a current issue of the L.A. Star crumpled in the wastebasket. I pulled it out and started through it. On page five, I found the hole where a two-column story had been clipped out. And then somebody was at the front door. I started toward it, but changed my mind at the sound of the key in the lock. And instead moved back into the den and watched. A head that belonged on a gopher wearing a battered fedora and inch-thick glasses above a fur-colored coat peeked in. Gave the place a myopic once over and headed straight for the den. So I stepped out where he could see me. I have never seen you before. What are you doing here? You tell me first, Pop. I'm bigger than you are. I'm Dr. Abraham Softman. Softman? Oh, the chemist Shirley Vitello works for. Is mm -hmm. that why you have a key? Yes, she leaves unfinished. She leaves work here for me to pick up. It's a convenience for both of us. But now you. You can also explain, maybe? Well, a friend thinks your assistant's in trouble. I'm trying to find out. The name's Marlowe. Uh-huh. I suspected now I am right. What? Shirley came to the laboratory late from lunch today and very much upset. She left again soon, right in the middle of our most important crimson test. Your what? Our crimson test. Oh, yes. Without one word to me, she left. Never does this happen before. In all the five years, she has been my loyal right hand. Uh, well, tell me, what's the nature of your research, Dr. Softman? Uh, we are developing new commercial dyes. Oh, such a beautiful crimson we have now. Really? Shirley knows as much as I do about all of it. Mm. Mr. Marlowe. Hmm? Was it you who opened the desk drawer there? De no. <laughs> I didn't notice it till now. Two boxes of 32 caliber ammunition. Nine shells gone from the top one. She kept a gun there. I've seen it before. That's gone, too. What kind of trouble needs a gun, Mr. Marlowe? Oh, I could think of a few. And they all say we'd better locate Shirley and soon. Now, look, Doc, I want to ask you... Just one moment, what? please. Maybe you will know if this means anything. I found this under her work table after she left this afternoon. Is it maybe something... 
I don't know. Let me see. Empty reservation envelope from Federal Airlines. L.A. to New York. Departure 11.35 tonight. Made out to Ruth Britton. Ruth Britton? Who's that? Well, I don't know her, but she must be something to Shirley. Perhaps this Ruth Britton is the trouble. Well, the airline number's here. Where's the phone? It's out there in the other room. Oh. There on the page. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Hudson to eight, six, one oh. Good evening, Federal Airlines. Agent Frederick Stowe speaking. Frederick, do you have a Ruth Britton listed on your 1135 flight to New York? Oh, just one moment now, sir. I'll check. Oh, no. Yes, yes, we do. Yeah, well, I, I've got a locator. Do you have an address or a phone number there? Oh, no, sir, I do not. And even if I did, I'm look, afraid Freddy I could Look, Freddie boy, Freddie boy, this is important. I need that information. Now, describe it to me. What does she look like? Oh, dear, I'm afraid I can't. Oh. I must have sold the ticket. I'm the only agent on duty, but I just can't seem to think where I am. Try, I'm... will you think? I am. How do you expect oh, me to remember awful. 75 or 80 faces every day? Now, listen, I... Good heavens, don't you think I get confused? Yes, I every do, Every time I nine do. or ten jerks come in here at once, all wanting tickets at the Never same mind. time. Don't you think I have Skip the right Frederickson. Now, look, Doc. Now, look, do me a favor, will you? What is it? Stay right here and wait for Shirley. If she comes back, hold her. I'm going to look up her husband, Gilbert. first stop was a newsstand. I bought an L.A. star, turned to page five, and found that the missing story was on a man identified only as Denica, who'd been hit by a taxi on Temple Street at 8 a.m. The only reason it rated two columns was that before he lapsed into unconsciousness, he told the ambulance crew from the Citizens Emergency Hospital that he knew he was going to die and wanted to clear his conscience by confessing a crime he'd committed. It ended with police standing by. I drove on into Benedict Canyon, wondering... What kind of a bridge it was going to take to span the gap between a female chemist and a downtown traffic accident? I was still wondering when I got the number 510. All I could see of Gilbert Vitello's studio over the brush around it was something pseudo-Spanish that had been stuck onto a piece of vertical real estate by an optimist in the early 20s. A path had been opened from the driveway to the house, and as I walked to the door, the piano music from inside got louder, but not better. Even in the long-haired circle, that stuff needed a haircut. Hey! Hey! Vitello, break it up a minute, will you? What's the meaning of this outburst? I'm working and I won't be interrupted. Who are you? What do you want anyway? Take it easy, Mr. Vitello. Easy. My name is Marlowe. Betty Cantor sent me here because she's worried about your wife. The waitress worried about Shirley? Why? Well, she's in some kind of trouble. Have you seen her tonight? No, no, no. Not since this morning, but that's not unusual. I often work late. My music is very demanding. Now, what gives that waitress the idea that Shirley's in trouble? Your wife's reaction to a newspaper story. It scared the wits out of her. About a taxi hitting a man named Denica mean anything to you? Denica? Shirley worked with a fellow by that name once, I believe. But why would that story frighten her? Well, I was hoping you'd tell me. Do you have a gun? Uh, a, a little thirty-two pistol that's at home. Why? It's gone. See here, what's this all about? Tell me. Tell me the truth and be quick about oh, it. Oh, shut up. Answer my question. All right. My wife was shocked by that item on Denneker. She isn't at home, she isn't at Softman's lab, and hasn't been all afternoon. And what's oh. more, she's got a gun. That's all I know, except for one thing. Who's Ruth Britton? She's a friend of Shirley's from the East. She's been visiting relatives out here. Why? Nothing. Maybe Shirley's got a plane reservation for her. That's all. Miss Marlowe, if that's all you have to offer, why don't you get out of here so I can go to work? I'm quite certain if Shirley were actually in trouble, she'd come to me for help. 
and incidentally tell Betty Cantor to take some, some, some vitamins or something. She's becoming a meddlesome busybody. You know, there was a quality about Gilbert Vitello that made me want to sock him on the temperament with the heavy end of his grand piano. When I started down the path of the driveway, I forgot about him. Because a pair of headlights slashed through the foliage like a giant scythe. I ran to where I could see and watch the girl in a brown suit get out of a sleek new Hudson and start toward the house. Then she saw me. She backed away, then threw me one scared look and darted into a side path like a jittery cottontail. I followed as fast as I could, but it was home ground to her, and in 20 yards I was outclassed. I lost her at the corner of a sagging shed and stopped to listen for her footsteps. I heard something else, but not in time to duck. Oh! I heard a car come oh, into the shut party. Up, Who shut up, shut up. Surely she slugged me. I, I, I don't believe it. You're lying. Okay, I'm lying. But what it's worth to you, die hard. Your wife isn't kidding. She told me personally with a blunt instrument. Play that knee flat, Jack. Did you get something? Lumps. Oh, look at How that. about you, Dr. Softman? No, nothing. Come in, come in. Yeah. No, no one has come here. You found out something? Ever hear of a guy named Denica, Doc? Me? Here, Morris Denica? <laughs> Five times in the past three years, Morris Denica in Chicago has beaten me by introducing a new dye substance or a new process just days ahead of me. Huh. Five times this happened. He's a dye chemist, too. Huh? A brilliant one. I admire him. But why do you Listen, ask this me is beginning to fit like a rubber glove. Hmm? Denica's in a hospital right here in L.A. He may not live and he wants to confess to a crime. Here, look. What? Now, read it yourself. When Shirley saw that story, it threw her into a panic. And now, it only figures one way. Your assistant has been selling your new developments to Denica before you release them. No, it is not true. Shirley would not do this thing. Not to me. Okay, Doc, we'll see. Now, look, why don't you go back to your lab and wait? I'm going to the hospital now and do some more fast addition. If it comes right... Just don't forget you're a scientist, will you? Oh, I would not forget. Now, you remember something, Mr. Marlowe. Two plus two does not always make four, especially when you are adding up human hearts. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, Wednesday's Wonderful on CBS... With Dr. Christian, Groucho Marx, Bing Crosby, and Burns and Allen all coming your way over most of these same CBS stations. This Wednesday, Brother Bob Crosby visits Bing. Gracie Allen stumps the income tax experts. Groucho will be on hand with his ad libs and teams of opposition. And Dr. Christian makes a wily grandmother stick to the truth for once. So be listening this Wednesday, won't you? Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe in tonight's story, The Big Step. It was 20 stop-and-go minutes through the snarled early evening traffic over to the Citizens' Emergency Hospital. All the way, I kept hoping that Denica's confession wasn't going to have anything to do with Shirley Vitello. When I was there, standing next to Detective Lieutenant Matthews and filling him in to date, I wrecked that hope up under wishful thinking. Morris Denica had already come, too. Yeah, Marlowe, about a half hour ago. 
He didn't say too much. How much? Only something about this woman you mentioned, this Shirley Vitello, and yeah. the formula for some kind of a bleaching agent. Then he went out again. Hey, look, this, uh, this Vitello girl who currently adds up to something very... What does she look like? Oh, blonde, about 5'4", maybe 30. Wearing a dark brown suit and all hat? That's right. She's been around? Yeah, I spotted her here in the hall about 45 minutes ago. Claimed mm-hmm. she was a reporter, but she didn't make any small talk with the other news hands. I got a little suspicious. Just then, Denica came too, so I went in there. When I came back out, she was gone. Hey, Marlo, you know where we can pick her up? No, I don't, Lieutenant. Doesn't look so good for her. She could be pretty desperate right now. Like a quick trip to the country. Or like worse, she's got a gun, Matthews. And now oh. with Denica starting to talk, very little hope left. I better be going. Where? Just Phil? going, just going, Matthews. Hey, wait I'll a keep minute. in touch. Wait a minute. Look, we have a big organization, Mr. Marlowe. We're equipped to handle all kinds. We could do almost as good a job as you. Just keep that in mind, will you? Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad you said almost. So long. <laughs> Got back into my car and pointed it toward the Vitello place on Veteran Avenue again. Because I didn't know where else I could possibly pick up Shirley's trail. I felt like an uncomfortable emptiness was in the pit of my stomach. You know, like the guy who stands on a street corner and watches an ambulance in turn scrape up a traffic victim. He knows he didn't have anything to do with it, but that knowledge doesn't make him feel any better. Shirley Vitello was headed for trouble, bad trouble. And the pathetic little kid, Betty Cantor, who came into my office and started the whole thing could get hurt in the process. Well, I parked in front of the place, which from inside, a desk lamp showed a circle of light the size and color of a lemon lifesaver, and the front door was open inches, as though somebody had left in a big hurry. I walked on eggs as far as the door and nudged it, and I saw it on a table in the far corner of the room, a note propped up against the lamp and nothing else. I started toward it. Don't move. I'm behind you, and I've got a gun. Oh, fine. 32 caliber out of the desk drawer, no doubt. No doubt. Marlo, why are you mixing into something that's no business of yours? I'm a private detective working for your friend Betty Cantor. She's worried about you, Shirley. Marlo, what's done is done. Betty can't help me. You can't help me. Nobody can help me. I stole Softman's work, and I sold it to Morris Deniker. I didn't count on a deathbed confession. Why'd you do it? I love my husband, and he... He needs money to go on with his work. No. Gilbert's in on this with you, huh? Oh, no. No, he isn't. He he thought my wages were high, that's all. The note I left there on the table makes that clear. Also, it... Also what? It says goodbye. I, I love him, Marlowe. When I'm gone, he'll have enough money to carry on. Keep the studio that means so much to him. And nothing can be taken away from him. I've seen to that, legal-like. Just what do you mean, gone, Shirley? How far is gone? A long way, Marl. All the way. Suicide? Oh, no, Shirley, you Marl, can't mean that. Marl, let's not talk anymore. And don't bother about that phone. It's only Gilbert. How do you know? Well, when I pulled up outside here after I came from the hospital, he was home. I, I didn't want to speak to him, so I drove on until I came to a phone booth. And then I called here and told him to meet me at the Saffron Bar. <laughs> it's an old hangout of ours. You wanted to leave a note for him, but didn't want to face him, is that it? Yeah. He'll keep calling on and off for quite a while before he comes back here. I, I figured it would be better that way. I, I didn't want him chasing me. <laughs> the sea air might give the big lug a cold. It always did. 
Well, Marlowe, it, it looks like it's about time to put you away for safekeeping. I don't think so, Shirley. I think the phone is a... About... No! Next time, Marlowe, it'll be more than a vase, but just as fragile. Now, the closet's cedar line and strong. It, it should hold you long enough. Get in, Marlowe. Go on. Okay. And it is, baby. But first... What? The step you're about to take, Shirley, yeah, listen... Yeah, I know all about it. it. It's a big step, isn't it, Marlowe? We'll save your breath. I wouldn't be any happier in prison or running away, believe me. Not a bit happier. So long, Marlowe. Nobody's home. Shirley Vitello was mixed up about a lot of things in life, but that doesn't include closets because the one she put me in was strong. The lining she called Cedar must have been hand-me-down armor plate from a retired battle wagon. So all in all, I was 45 minutes alternately kicking and resting while the insistent telephone marked the five-minute intervals for me. But finally, it was the wood around the lock that gave way. <coughs> I was out. Hello? Hello, sir. Who's this? Marlowe Vitello, and save your questions till you hear what I have to say. Marlowe, where's my wife? She was supposed to meet me here at the Saffron Barn. I said She's save not... it. Now listen. Your wife's out to kill herself. No, Marlowe, no! Yes, tell me, did you two have a favorite spot out near the ocean? I, I don't see what the I don't head... care whether you see or not, did you or didn't you? Uh, yes, yes, the Redondo Fishing Pier below Santa Monica. Good, now keep listening, Vitello, and do as I say. Come straight home. But Marlowe, it's surely... Do as I say, Vitello. Come back here and sit tight with fingers crossed. I'll worry about the pier. Goodbye. And I picked up the phone again, dialed 116, got through to police emergency operator, and from there to Matthews, who was still at the Citizens Hospital. I told him to pick me up in a squad car and get ready for a fast 10-mile drive to the Redondo Fishing Pier, where Shirley Vitello was going to kill herself. Then I got outside and waited the four longest minutes of my life, until finally Matthews screeched up to a halt. When I piled in, we took off, siren wide open. <laughs> Less than a minute now, Marlowe. Pier's only a couple of blocks away. Good. Better have Mooney kill that siren, Lieutenant. Jack, we want to come in quiet, Mooney. Okay, Lieutenant. Well, there she is. That power's out on the pier. Yeah, Mooney, pull up here, will you? We don't want to scare her into something. Matthews. What? That crowd there, halfway out on the pier. There's a cop with them. Yes, so there is. You better drive right up, Mooney. Looks like we're too late, Phil. We were too late. At the center of a circle of the morbidly curious who always stand and gape, we found her lying face down in the greasy planks of the pier, dead. She'd shot herself through the heart and the gun. The same thirty-two she'd used on me was lying next to her. Two bullets gone. I explained the extra shot to Matthews. Uh-huh. Okay, one bullet fired up at her place and the other one here. Well, I hope you're satisfied, Marlow. What do you mean, satisfied? I mean single-handed. You had to leave the cops out of it, didn't you? You had to go up to Veteran Avenue all by your lonesome, didn't you? Now, you wait a minute, Matthews. I was only oh, trying to... Oh, nuts. Hey, Mooney, where's the nearest phone? Over there, Lieutenant, across the street, the Triple Eagle Cafe. The patrolman here has already called an ambulance. All right, tell him she can be moved. Come on, Marlow, I want to turn in a first report on this. Mm. Mooney, pick us up at the cafe. Right, Lieutenant. Okay, Bob. Okay, let's go. So Shirley Vitello was stealing formulas for those dyes from her boss and selling them to this Morris Denneker. Yeah. Always rosy until Denneker walked out in front of a taxi early this morning. And that put him close to death and in a mood to talk. Also put Shirley Vitello on the spot. Hey, is that the place you want to phone from? Yeah, yeah. Look, one thing more, Marlowe. 
The girl's motive all the way through. She loved her husband, he loved his work. Yeah, her too? Yeah, after his work. So since he didn't make any dough, she stole to keep him going and close to her. There's the phone, Phil. Come on, will you? I may need you to fill in the blanks for me. I... Marlowe, I said... I, I heard you, I heard you. The phone can wait, Lieutenant. Come on over here. What? I want to talk to that piano player. Piano player? What about? The tricky way he has of playing Blue Skies. What? Yeah. Hey, Bud, that's all right. You got a mean left hand there. Yeah, I open in Carnegie Hall next week. Don't miss me. I'll try not to. It's just terrific what you do with that tune, you know? My own particular arrangement. Nobody else's, huh? Not nobody. I've been working on this arrangement for a week. That's all I wanted to know. Hey, Marla, what are you getting at? The phone, I've heard enough. Where'd you say it was, Matthews? Over there at the left of the bar. But, Phil, what are What we time doing? is it, Lieutenant? Five after twelve. Marla, what a is switch, it? A switch, a switch, Matthews. A switch? Yeah, one that'll knock your badge off. Will you get a load of this? I'll listen. Good evening, Federal Airwaves. Agent Frederick Stoltz. Listen, Frederick, I'm the party who called before about the reservations for Ruth Britton on the 1135 for New York. Oh, yes, I remember you. I'll probably... Never mind, it's police business, Freddie. Did the plane leave on schedule? Of course it did. But Miss Britton didn't make it, and she didn't bother to call and cancel her reservation. Thanks, I've heard enough. So far, so good, Matthews. Yeah, which means what? The Saffron Bar in Hollywood. Which means what? Shirley Vitello didn't commit suicide, Matthew. She was murdered. Okay, Phil. Where's your man? Right there. That table against the wall. Oh. Come on, Matthew. Hawaiian music. Sentimental rock. Degradation. Abomination. Oh, I don't think it's as bad as all that, Gilbert, old boy. Marlo, you were caught the most insensitive of all people. What would you know about music? Just for the record, he's not a cop. My question still stands. What do you know about music? As a matter of fact, not much. But you know, I'm fascinated by what they're doing with instruments these days. Really? Mm-hmm. What are they doing that might fascinate you? Well, for example, take that picture where the score is done by only one instrument, a zither. What's more, it doesn't sound like a zither. To a trained ear, a zither is a zither. You mean you can't make one instrument sound like another? Well, for example, uh, a guitar like a piano? Don't be ridiculous. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Not so ridiculous. Why, only tonight I heard a guitar that sounded just like a piano. Real tricky arrangement it was, too. Sounded... You're joking. Oh, no, no. Well, you must have heard it, too. It was while we were talking on the telephone. The telephone? I talked to you? Sure you did. You remember? Uh, Ma, Ma. You said you were calling from here, the Saffron Bar, but Ma, the conversation Ma. was being scored by the Ma. pianist at the Triple Eagle Cafe at Redondo Beach. A real Ma. tricky arrangement in more ways than one. I, I, I didn't need it. I, I didn't really want to. All right, what's the rest of it, Phil? He didn't want to quit his work and spend the rest of his life hiding in some forgotten corner of the globe. Which was her plan? Yeah. As I figure it, once Shirley knew she was finished, she decided they should both run for it. He was in on what she was doing all along. And the suicide note? Uh, it was part of a plan. Oh. Leave puppy here and innocent with the money she got for a shenanigans. Then frame her own suicide, a trail that would lead us to the Redondo Pier, her hat and coat floating in the drink. Uh-huh. And after a couple of days of searching, we say the tide probably carried the body out to sea. Close case. That's right. In the meantime, she's flown to New York as Ruth Britton and is heading on from there. 
Hubby here to join her at a later date. Yeah, fine. Only Hubby double-crossed her and shot her so he can sit tight with the money right here. That's it, Matthews. Oh, please, please, give me another chance. Oh, shut up. Wipe and dry, Matthews, and take him away. I didn't even bother about my car, which I'd left in front of the Vitello place. Oh, I'd had enough for one night. Enough of the kind of person who'd hitch his wagon to a star only if the twinkle he saw on the horizon was the reflection of a dollar sign. Oh, yeah, they were a pair, all right, the Vitellos. A pair who finally canceled each other out. You know what? I'm glad of it. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and are written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Gene Bates, Paul Dubov, Vivi Janis, Edgar Berrier, and Peter Leeds. Detective Lieutenant Matthews is played by Larry Dobkin. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. <laughs> Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... This time I tangled with a mad Scotchman, a phony English lord and a beautiful blonde corpse in a freight house. All because of a butler who walked on his knuckles. How about tying a mental string around your finger today to remind yourself to file your 1949 income tax return as soon as possible? The 15th of March isn't several miles down the road the way it used to be. It's almost at your front door. And you'd certainly get a scare if you came home one evening to find it sitting right smack in your living room saying smugly, Well, you forgot to file your income tax return. What now, little man? So why not set aside tonight as income tax night and file your 1949 return? This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, where Burns and Allen are heard every Wednesday night, the Columbia Broadcasting System. for Case Closed for this time. If you want to find more from Spade, Marlowe, past episodes of Case Closed, all the other Relic Radio podcasts, and thousands of other old-time radio shows, visit relicradio.com. You'll find it all there. And while you're there, if you'd like to help support it all, click on that Donate button or visit donate.relicradio.com. Your support is how all of this happens. My thanks, as always, to those who have helped out. Thank you very much for joining me today. I'll be back next Wednesday with another hour of Case Closed. <laughs>